As you're taking your seat, if you will find First uh, Peter chapter one in your copy of God's Word. First Peter chapter one. Uh, I do apologize for missing the Lord's prayer. That was not on purpose. Some want to. Some are agitating to still do it. We'll do it next week. Spencer didn't even have to sit through an hour of me already. He's trying to avoid another couple of hours of my sermon. So. First Peter chapter 1. We're continuing our series that Pastor Jeff started, and there's no reason to fear Pastor Jeff. Lord willing, we'll be back next week. He's in California visiting family. We're going to look at, I'm going to read verses 3 through 12. We're going to look, we're going to pick up in verse 6, 6 through 12 today, but I'm going to read 3 through 12. Where the Apostle Peter says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, Peter's purpose here in this passage is to uh, reveal to us the mixture of joy and suffering that occurs in the Christian life. These uh, letters like we have in the New Testament have a form. They, uh, they're a very common form in the ancient world, and Peter's letter follows that form. There's an introductory, verses 1 and 2, that we've seen. At the end, there'll be a conclusion or a benediction. But most of the letter is a, a body. Most of, most of the letter is this body, and this section 3 through 12 is just the introduction to what's going to come in the rest of of his letter. So I'm going to refer to this 
portion 3 through 12 as the introduction to the body of the letter, because that's how it works. And in the first part of the body of this letter, verses 3 through 12, Peter describes salvation for us from three different perspectives. Verses 3 through 5, which we've seen the last couple weeks, he describes salvation from God's perspective. And now moving on to verses 6 and following in 6 through 9, he's going to talk about salvation from the perspective of the believer. And then in 10 and 12, he's going to describe the intense longing to see salvation that the prophets had. And surprisingly, maybe to some of us, that the angels have, desiring to look in to these things and experience and understand them. Peter reveals that suffering is a part of salvation. In fact, the suffering of believers, it turns out, is an added proof of our salvation. Now, there's one other thing I want to point out to you. This introduction to the body, verses 3 through 12, are all a buildup to something we're going to hear about next week. If you look at verse 13, it starts with, therefore. So Peter's telling us about salvation. He's giving us these different perspectives. And then next week, he's going to build on that. And that's that's how the this letter of Peter works. It flows from a a series of statements, and then a therefore, and then he'll go on for a while with conclusions that he's drawing and application, then he'll come back to another set of statements. And if you read First Peter, it seems like he just, it almost like he kind of rambles on from point to point to point. But I think that's a feature of the fact that these letters, they were expensive to write. Peter probably hired a scribe to help him write this. The materials that it's written on were animal skins. They were very expensive. So really, he's not rambling so much as he's really condensed a lot of things into a small amount of space. So even though he's going to go on in verse 13 to a therefore, even in this passage that we're looking at today, we're going to draw some very interesting conclusions because he has packed a lot in. And the chief thing we're going to be learning about is that salvation includes suffering. Suffering is part of salvation. So Peter, as he's writing to this audience, he describes this audience in verses 1 and 2. They should understand that the suffering that they're going through is a part of sanctification. Sanctification is this big, fancy word that means to be made holy. His audience is going through a process that's going to make them increasingly, as part of their Christian life, more and more holy, more and more set apart from sin. The example he's going to give us is the refiner's fire. It's something that takes a material and makes it more precious. That's what God is doing to Peter's audience. They should understand that suffering was predicted for the Messiah. It was endured by the prophets and show it should be expected, suffering should be expected by Peter's believing audience. And our application today that comes out of this passage is that believers rise above these sufferings. Indeed, believers 
must grow in faith to the point that we turn these sufferings into occasions for joy. Let me read that again because on its face, it's a ridiculous thing to do. Think about this. And by the way, this comes from John Calvin. Believers rise above these sufferings. Indeed, believers must grow in faith to the point that we turn these sufferings into occasions for joy. Peter's saying we ought to be looking for suffering to come along, and it ought to, while we suffer, create joy. It's okay to think that that's just not normal. That's not what the world does. The Holy Spirit causes us to do things that the world doesn't and can't do. That's what we're going to look at today. So if you will, come back to the text with me to verse 6. We've already spent a couple weeks on the details of 3, 4, and 5. Pastor Jeff spent a week on each verse there because there's, again, so much packed into those verses. There's so much that can be said about salvation from God's perspective. I'm sure uh, if you ask Pastor Jeff, he probably left a lot of material out that he could have also gone into because there's so much just in those three verses. But now in verse 6, Peter turns to give us some insight into the believer's experience of salvation. He says in verse 6, in this you rejoice. The in this is the salvation, the topic that he's talking about in these verses. So in this salvation you rejoice. Because of this salvation you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, He's talking to his audience, and he's saying, I know you guys are believers. Peter's convinced his audience is saved. The people that he's writing to are Christians. But he sees that they're suffering. He might have gotten a messenger that has told them that they're suffering. Uh, Some other way he's found out that they are going through trials of some sort. We don't know exactly what it is. We do know at this time in the areas, if you look back at verse 1, Peter's writing to specific geographical locations. And in those areas, we know that the governors appointed by Rome were persecuting Christians. There was a local persecution by the authorities against Christians. That might be what they're suffering. But also... Just think about it. This time, as these letters are written, all these people are new converts, right? There is no Christianity prior to this. And so these people, whether Gentiles and have turned away from the idols they were worshiping, that they were, grew up in, that their society worshiped, or if they're Jews that have become Christians, they're turning away from the worship that they were raised in, they might be being persecuted or suffering the loss of family, friends, either of these things, they are suffering, they are being persecuted, they're they're having difficulties because of their faith. And I think implied here is that they're surprised by this suffering. In other words, they maybe, maybe have said to Peter, hey, we became believers, and then all of a sudden bad things started happening. People turned against us. We encountered misery like we've never had before. They might have begun to think, did we do something wrong? Did we misunderstand? 
Did we make a mistake in what we've done? They've become Christians, and yet they've encountered hostility. So they're both joyful at understanding the Word of God, understanding what Christ has done, but they're also miserable. So Peter's purpose is to show them in these verses that suffering is a part of the Christian experience. And it's not, not only is it a, a feature, if you will, of the Christian experience, it has a usefulness. It has utility. Peter uses the example of the refiner's fire. Look at verse 7 with me, if you will. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. See, he already thinks their faith is genuine. The tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at some future revelation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He gives this example of the refiner's fire. Now, I don't know if you've ever refined anything or put anything into fire, but it's dangerous. Fire is a dangerous thing. Groceries are expensive now, and if you cook, what are you doing? You're taking your expensive groceries and you're applying fire to them. If you don't do it right, it can be ruined. The food can become worthless even though you spent money on it. Think of gold ore or a gold nugget. If you've ever gone to one of these, uh, I like to drag my family to these uh, places where they sell minerals and museums where there's minerals and there's these amazing gold nuggets that people have found. They're valuable. If you had a bunch of gold ore, that would be valuable. But we know it's not the most valuable it can become. So what do you do? You got to put that ore into the fire. You got to take that nugget. You got to melt it down, and it drives out the impurities. And if you don't pay attention, if it gets too hot, believe it or not, that cold, that gold, sorry, that gold can evaporate. You can lose it. You can do that with steel as well. If your fire is too hot, that steel can literally evaporate and be gone, and you pull out a stub. That gold. You don't watch that fire and disappear. It can be ruined. But what happens if you do it right? You get pure gold. Much more valuable. Many people think it's the most valuable thing in our society is that 24-carat purified gold. Ladies, if a, your husband came to you and said, I'd love to give you a ring of gold ore, you would probably say, no thanks, right? Not that that ore is not valuable, but that refined gold is so much better. A diamond, think about a diamond. Has anybody ever seen a raw diamond? They look like just a rock. And diamonds are incredibly hard, and that makes them brittle. So as you cut and polish them, you risk shattering that diamond, and when it shatters, it's worthless. It's just garbage. But what happens if you polish it correctly? You get a gemstone, something that is of incalculable value and beauty, right? Men, if you go to a lady, young men out there, you go to a lady with a raw diamond engagement ring, she's not going to be impressed. But if you take 
the cut and polished gemstones, right? There's value there. You see the analogy that Peter is applying to your faith. He says, if you, God takes your faith and puts it in the refiner's fire, what comes out, look at me at the end of verse 7, is something that results in praise, glory, honor. Folks, Peter is saying, when you go to the judgment and you are found to be a believer of Christ, there will be praise and honor and glory for your refined faith. Isn't that astounding? We're not saved for what we do. Christ saves us, and yet, at the end of this, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and I think what Peter means here, that revelation of Jesus Christ, is that final, complete revelation. When we go to the judgment, when, when all things are revealed, when all things are completed, when our salvation is finally complete, we no more have sin. That's that final revelation of Jesus Christ. We see him with our own eyes. And then we see praise and honor and glory because of how faithful we were. doesn't earn our salvation. God does the work of salvation. And yet he mercifully, graciously gives honor and praise and glory to us, having refined that faith. When you are a believer, you start with genuine faith. That's how he begins verse 7. But as that faith is tested, it grows. It becomes stronger. So as the refiner's fire is applied to the immature and weak faith, as these trials batter us and we endure them in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are turned into someone with a stalwart faith, a steady and mature faith. Okay? So 8 and 9, let's turn to 8 and 9. Peter had mentioned at the beginning of verse 6 that this audience had joy. He's talked about the suffering has. Now he's coming back to this topic of joy. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. These people may have never actually seen the man Jesus. They may have received the gospel from believers who were coming through that area, might have encountered Paul and his teachings, might have encountered Peter. We know Peter ends up in Ephesus. Tradition holds that he goes on then to Rome. Ephesus is the main city near these regions mentioned. But they may never have actually seen Jesus, and yet they've trusted that someday in the judgment, he's going to save them from the wrath of God. Does that sound familiar to any of you today? You've not seen the man Jesus. And when you think about what he's done, when you reflect on the texts of Scripture that talk about the suffering of Jesus, the work of Jesus, do you not feel some inexpressible joy? Doesn't it well up in you to think that God took on flesh to save you? Peter's saying, you guys remember to his audience, remember that joy you felt when you were converted. Remember that, and then the suffering comes along. 
He says, yes, you're suffering now, but when you trusted Jesus Christ, you experienced this immeasurable joy. Salvation wasn't complete immediately. They weren't saved and then miracled away to heaven to only be inexpressible joy. They had trust that it would be completed. And that trust, that faith, caused this upwelling of joy. The joy comes out of faith. We're not talking about joy at material gain. If you find $10 in the parking lot of the football game, like my son did, you experience some joy, right? $10. That's not the joy we're talking about. If you have a new child born in your family or to you as a parent, you feel joy, right? But that's not the joy he's talking about. He's talking about the joy that comes from the knowledge that salvation has come to you. But you don't have the salvation completed, right? Do you feel that joy? Can you think back to that time in your walk of faith when you felt that joy? We don't. We we usually feel it when we're saved. There are other times in that Christian life when we feel it as well. But Paul points out, or sorry, I'm going to say Paul. I've been trying to train myself not to say Paul after all of Romans and say Peter. But Peter points out that that joy is not the only thing. Suffering, attendance, suffering and joy go together in the Christian experience. In fact, he says they're evidence of faith. So, for example, you cannot have faith in Christ if you don't experience that joy sometimes. If you think you're a Christian and you read the words and you think you understand what Christ has done, but it doesn't really cause any joy in your life or any feeling of joy, you've probably missed what's happening here. Well, you can't have Christ without suffering. That's what Peter is saying to his audience. If you go through the Christian life and there's no suffering because of your faith, you may not have Christ either. Joy is the result of under, understanding verses 3 through 5, the heavenly reality, but it's a tempered joy with our current experience, our current suffering in this world. Now, again, I'm talking about joy that comes from faith and suffering that comes from faith. That's a very important distinction. Listen to John Calvin. All they who regard their troubles as necessary trials for their salvation, this goes back to what I was saying earlier, not only rise above them, but also turn them into an occasion for joy. All those who regard their troubles as necessary trials for their salvation. Those believers who see those trials coming along and recognize, God's about to work on my faith. God's about to put me into the fire and refine me. You cannot have faith without joy and suffering. They go together. And in fact, they are a proof of our salvation. Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. This process that we're going through 
both the joy that we experience and the trials and suffering that we experience are the process of obtaining the object of our faith. What is it? The salvation of our souls. Folks, that salvation is completed at the judgment where we're confronted by the wrath of God. We know that our sin has made us guilty, and it's Christ who's there who says, no, this is one of mine. I've paid for these sins. I've lived the righteous life, excuse me, for this person. Enter into my joy. Peter also wants to show us, verses 10 through 12, that if we pay attention to our Bibles, we would have also seen that suffering was part of the Christian faith. It's been shown in the Old Testament, and I've found three ways that it's been shown. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. First, the prophets have shown it to us. Concerning this salvation, right? Peter's talking about the same thing in these verses, three different perspectives of salvation, God's perspective, our experience, and now in verse 10, the historical perspective, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They were diligent, folks, in trying to understand this idea of Messiah, this idea of salvation. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. In other words, the Holy Spirit was telling these prophets that there's going to be salvation from what you're experiencing now. Think about the Old Testament prophets. Think of what uh, Bo read about Isaiah, the suffering servant. Think about the sin and the destruction that they saw Israel putting itself through. And they said, how is this going to be fixed by God? And the Holy Spirit taught them that a Messiah would come. A Messiah would come and bring salvation. We also know from Old Testament these were in pipes and shadows, right? So as the Holy Spirit revealed this to them, they searched diligently. Verse 11, what time is this going to happen? What person? Where is this going to happen? And then they learned from this Spirit of Christ, from the Holy Spirit, that the Messiah, indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ, the Messiah would suffer. That's what Isaiah 53 was about. The suffering servant passage is about the Messiah and all the different ways that he would suffer. It reads like a gospel account of the crucifixion and life of Christ. God knows what he's doing when he prophesies to these prophets. Isaiah is not the only one. In almost all every book of the Old Testament, you can find predictions of salvation that would come through suffering. And afterwards, look at the end of verse 11. Afterwards, glory. Subsequent glory. So what's going to happen? Messiah's going to come, and unlike what we had hoped, he wasn't going to come and kick out the Romans or fix our political system. He's going to come as a servant and suffer. What does he suffer? Beatings, mockery, humiliation, death on a cross as a criminal. Brutal, torturous death. And after that, glory. Resurrection. A throne above all thrones. At his name, every knee will bow. Folks, the Old Testament has told us as believers, we will go through the same thing. Christ is a pathfinder for us. 
Now, he does it in his own power. He endures the shame. He's found to be alive from death. He overcomes death. Man's authority in his own power. But we will go through suffering, mockery, maybe beating, maybe being put to death. We will all die. And then glory. So the Messiah, the prophets have shown us the Messiah will go through this process as an example that we would too. We should expect before glory, we should go through suffering. The prophets also begin to realize that the prophecies aren't for them. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves. Isn't this astonishing? But you, believer... Think of those prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah witnessing Jerusalem destroyed, women and children murdered, Daniel in the lion's den, the three heroes of Daniel in the fiery furnace. Think of all those prophets and what they went through, and they begin to realize as the Holy Spirit speaks through them, they're not going to see Messiah in their lives. They're not going to taste the revelation of salvation in their lives. They're going to prophesy and endure all that suffering for you to know the good news of the gospel. And what do they look forward to? Future glory. The prophets are saved with a salvation like ours. Do you remember Romans 4? Paul says, have a faith like Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him. God said, I will give you righteousness because of your faith. These prophets, these heroes of the Old Testament, and all they endured, they do it through faith of something that they see in the future recognizing they won't realize it in their lives. I'm not saying they won't realize salvation, but they won't see it the way we see it, the fullness of the Messiah coming. We have this privileged position where we look back and we see what Jesus did, what he endured. We see the resurrection. We get the teachings that he gives, and we can look forward to future glory as well. And then finally, look at this curious statement at the end of verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. Even the angels want to know about salvation. Angels cannot be saved. There are fallen angels. There are angels that worship and hold fast to God and are not fallen. Righteous angels, we could call them. But those that are fallen, Jude tell us they are kept in gloomy darkness, in unbreakable chains for a future judgment. They can't be redeemed from that fallen condition like we can. What salvation is, is this miracle where God doesn't turn his back on his enemies, where he doesn't pour out his judgment on his enemies like he ought to. But he pours out mercy on them, and he turns them 
from enemies into sons in his own kingdom. The angels, they're watching this pageant of redemption. And they long to know what it would be like for God to save someone. Isn't that a curious statement? Doesn't that show you the magnitude of what God is doing? And remember, Peter's now going to go on to verse 13 and say, therefore, he's got a whole point we'll look at next week. But for us, we should recognize that the prophet suffered, Messiah suffered. We should not be surprised when we suffer. Are you starting to feel a little bit of that joy as we look at what God has done? And are you here today with some suffering because of your faith? Well, Peter now has completed this threefold look. What does this mean to us? So what? How do we deal with it? What should we do with our joy and our suffering? Again, Peter's readers might have been suffering from some kind of general persecution, but they might have also been suffering the kind of things that we will suffer today. Rejection by family, repudiation by friends, turning away from old religious practices, what the world has taught us is the way to worship, to what Scripture has taught us to worship, will be fraught with suffering. It will be loaded up with suffering. It's not an error. It's not a bug. It's part of what happens when we become a Christian. Have there been times when you've been caught by surprise by suffering that's related to your faith in Christ? There's another type of suffering that we can endure. We go out, we rob somebody, and the state catches us. The state will make us suffer, right? We're caught in a lie. We're publicly humiliated by that, and we suffer. That's another type of suffering. That's not the type of suffering I'm talking about here. I'm talking about suffering that occurs because of our faith. And it often happens in the groups that we think are our family or our friends. It often happens among those that we think are like us. Have you experienced that? In other words, we're not often surprised when, you know, some radical leftist group comes in and wants to oppress the church, right? That's what they do, right? We're not surprised when some foreign nation comes in that worships other gods and closes our churches, wants us to change how we worship. It's when we've been going along with a group of people that we thought had the same politics we do, we thought had the same beliefs that we do, and then they see our faith growing and our commitment to Christ growing, and they turn on us. Anybody experience that? I know some of you have experienced it. I've experienced it with some of you. Others have told me experiencing this, their family turning their back on them because you've become a Jesus freak, right? If you lost a job or lost out on a promotion or lost out on a raise because you won't do some underhanded thing because of your faith in Christ that other coworkers will do. Or you won't show up on Sunday because you're at church and your boss wants you to be at work all the time. I'm not talking about the occasional, you know, emergency or something like that. 
I'm talking about those times when people see your faith, when your faith comes into a collision with the world, and you don't hide it, it's often those people that we thought were closest to us in our camp that turn on us and cause us to suffer. It's not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising to us. It doesn't indicate a problem with our faith. It's sanctification occurring. It's God doing the work with the refiner's fire, committing the valuable material to the flame. What's the valuable material? Believer, you are. God spent his own son, the Father spent his own son to save you. So when he puts the fire to you, it's not a mistake, it's not an accident. It's not victory by the world. It's God himself causing you to be refined. If you understand what Christ has promised, look at verses 3 and 5, look at other parts of Scripture, you'll also have joy. Right? Why? Because you recognize that suffering is part of faith, and it comes along with these attendant promises that Christ has made. And so you see how it becomes sort of an evidence to us. Hey, I'm suffering for my faith. That's actually, there's a good thing here. My faith is going to grow. God cares about me. Christ died for me. I think of Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are called in front of the council, the Sanhedrin, and they're beaten, and strictly warned not to heal anyone again in the name of Christ. How silly is that? And they go out of there. They're not downtrodden. They're not miserable. They go out rejoicing. They say, we were worthy to suffer for Christ. Not an arrogant worthiness, but saying, hey, we're in the kingdom Our suffering is showing that. You're worthy to suffer for Christ. When you receive this evidence of your faith, you're receiving through this suffering proof that you have participation in Christ. And that begins that cycle of feeling that joy, even though you're suffering. Now, do you see how joy and suffering start to come together? Now, there's a contrast here I mentioned. You go out and you commit crimes, the world's going to make you suffer. If you do not want to suffer, there's a solution. There's something you can do. Embrace the world. Go along with the world and you will not suffer. Go along with the world and you'll receive good things. You'll receive pleasures. You'll receive a type of joy. You'll receive a type of wealth. Hopefully you're sitting here thinking, I can't believe this guy's trying to preach in the church then go along with the world. What you won't receive is anything that has longevity because that judgment of Christ is coming. So you'll experience pleasure in the short term. You won't suffer. We looked at a parable this morning in a way. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, go and embrace what you really love. The wealth of this world. Stop being a hypocrite about it. 
if you don't want to suffer, you can go down that route. But you say, well, but I see people who are unbelievers suffering all the time. Yeah, absolutely. We suffer sickness. We suffer accidents. All those things come about from sin. But you can also make it hard on yourself by bucking the system in the name of just being rebellious, in the name of just being difficult. You'll commit crimes. You'll be made to suffer. That's not the suffering Peter's talking about. Society will always make believers suffer. Any society that claims that it's a Christian society or has a foot in Christ will eventually turn on the believers within it. Are we seeing that today? Some of us who were older, we thought we were growing up in a Christian society, right? And you can find examples of the left persecuting Christians. Guess what? It's not too hard to find examples of the right doing it either. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, is people that we thought were doing our work politically, people that we thought in churches were Christian leaders. Now they're embracing homosexuality. They're embracing all manner of sin. And they're doing it in the name of Christ. And they're turning on other believers. Folks, if you grow in your faith, you will be made to suffer by society. It will happen. You can make yourself suffer. You can make yourself suffer, suffer other ways. But if you embrace Christ, you will be made to suffer. Recognize that you stand when that suffering for your faith comes along in the line of the prophets. You're with those guys. They suffered. The Messiah suffered. Folks, that's the first thing you can do when you recognize you're being suffered, that you're being caused to suffer because of your faith in Christ. You can think back and say, I'm with Isaiah. I'm with Jeremiah. I'm with Peter and John. I'm with Jesus Christ. He suffered horribly too. They suffered as we do because they have a salvation like we do. Again, Paul Romans, a salvation that is what? By grace alone. It is through faith alone. And it has one and only one object that can have only one source. And that is Christ alone. Paul tells us that was the faith that Abraham had. That's the faith he appealed to us in our series on Romans. So eagerly they looked for the Messiah. They meditated on the scriptures while they were suffering. We saw that in verses 10 through 12. They were diligent in looking for when the salvation would come. Folks, you can do the same thing when you're suffering. You can turn to the scripture. A great place to start is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And as you're suffering, reflect on, hey, I'm suffering now because of my faith in Christ. And in heaven, God is preserving an imperishable inheritance. And he's doing it for me as the believer. So you can turn to Scripture. They looked, those prophets looked into Scripture to find out when and where and who would save them. And even though they recognized it's not going to happen. We're not going to see that in our lifetimes. They rejoiced. They held firm in faith when they were put in with life. 
They were beaten by Jews in Jerusalem at the temple like Jeremiah was. And what we have is so much better because we know the times and the places and we have the teaching of Messiah. So as I conclude here, believer, Peter is calling you to overcome suffering with joy. Show off your genuine belief. As a believer, you start with a genuine belief. But now refine your faith as you go through suffering. Some of you may not remember what we had a series on Colossians. And Paul in Colossians says, put off the old man and put on Jesus Christ. That's the work of sanctification. A long time ago, I preached that, and my wife came away from it and said, you know what, I didn't really get from your serving. What should I do to be sanctified? That was great feedback. Here's something you can do to sanctify, to be made holy as you encounter suffering. Run to Scripture. Run to prayer. Turn it into joy. I'm not talking about, folks, a superficial, phony, Yeah, I lost my job because of my Christian beliefs, but it doesn't matter. not talking about that. Suffering is real. We feel it. But we can say, but I also know that God's going to preserve me. I would rather have that salvation than that job. You You can experience both joy and suffering in the Christian life without it being superficial or phony. It's a work of salvation, or sanctification, excuse me. It is also not natural. You cannot do this work alone. It's a work that is rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is a work that you do clinging to the Word, clinging to your Scripture. You attend this work with prayer. So as you begin to suffer, look into the Scripture. Look at these passages like three through five. Look at the Psalms. Reflect on, search out diligently, not passively. Diligently is your suffering. What is Christ doing for you? How is God marshalling resources to care for you? Because he is in your suffering. How is he refining your faith? And as that joy wells up, let it start to overcome that suffering. Call in the Holy Spirit give you the strength to do it. Again, some of you have suffered more than others. Some of you have suffered awful things. The suffering that we see in history by Christians is much worse than anything we have suffered. So again, I'm not talking about ignoring suffering or superficial uh, joy or uh, excusing it, saying it's not a thing. I'm saying fight it with the joy that comes up when we understand what Christ is doing. But if you're an unbeliever, again, all you can do to deal with suffering is to try to avoid it by embracing your master, the world, the devil, the deceiver. Make peace with society. If you're an unbeliever and you're here today, if you're hearing me on the webcast. It'll feel good. It will reward you in this life. The only downside is all that 
is going to burn away. That refiner's fire, when it's applied to what you have embraced, unbeliever, anything you thought was good going into that is going to be burned away. You're going to be left with an eternal judgment, an eternal suffering that will never have any relief. In contrast, the Christian life is a call to self-sacrifice, submission, and suffering. We're not offering you a get-quick, get-rich-quick scheme, a get-healthy-quick scheme, a miracle, superficial, healing-of-the-flesh scheme. The call to embrace Christ is a call to self-sacrifice, submission, and suffering. So you can experience suffering if you want as an unbeliever. There's nothing to gain to gain by it. It's just misery. Christian suffering is never misery. Christian suffering is never misery. Suffering in the world, no joy comes from it. So in the end, as an unbeliever, you're left with these two choices. Comply with society now for short-term pleasure and eternal punishment or endure. Join us in enduring the mockery, the loss, the suffering, the pain. Join us like, like Christ endured these sufferings, like the prophets did, like Christians before us have done. And you acquire God's promises. You acquire God. Receiving salvation, receiving Christ, is the acquisition of God himself. So our purpose, Peter's purpose here in this passage of text, was to describe salvation in these three parts. I'm almost done. God's perspective on salvation the experience of salvation by believers, and the intense longing for salvation by the prophets and the angels. Peter is setting the stage for the, therefore, we're going to see in verse 13. And if you come back, Lord willing, Pastor Jeff will take us on into the next section. But here in this passage, Peter is confirming that salvation is a part of salvation. In fact, it is a proof. It's an evidence to you of your salvation. So when you leave here today, you're going to encounter suffering. Some of you are going to go out of here because you're suffering right now. And I don't mean at my sermon. You're going to go out of here. You're either facing some difficulty in the world. If you're not now, you will be. You ought to understand that safe, that this suffering is a part of this refinement. We ought to understand that suffering was predicted in the life of the Messiah. It was endured by the prophets. And so we ought to expect this suffering to come along, and we ought to face it and look for the joy that we have with that suffering. That's the first thing you do. Go to the Word. You're suffering. You feel like it's misery. What do I do? Diligently search the Word. Call the power of the Holy Spirit to help you. Pray. Look for joy to be had with that suffering. If you've begun to do that, the next step you can take it to 
see that suffering coming and say, hey, I'm about to have an occasion for joy. That sounds crazy. I'm not talking about being superficial. But recognizing as that suffering comes down in on you, you embrace in it, live in it, recognize it. Your faith is growing. Have that joy as you begin to suffer. Let that joy spill out onto others. Well, there's nothing more encouraging to other believers when you see a mature believer going through a miserable experience and seeing their walk of faith. There's nothing more encouragement in my life as a Christian to see other people do that as believers and say, man, next time I suffer, i got to remember what this person did. I've got to do that. Folks, that's sanctification. You're not saving yourself when you do those works. You're seeing your salvation bubbling up out of you. So as you go out of here today, appeal to the Holy Spirit to give you strength to overcome suffering with the joy of what Messiah has promised you, a living hope of resurrection, an imperishable inheritance, and the glorious future presence of Jehovah Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, we can't do these things without you. We can't do these things without your awesome power. Do this work of refining. Hold our hands as we go through suffering. We're too weak. We rely on ourselves. We'll fail. We rely on ourselves. We'll go back to sin. We'll be lost. Walk with us. No, carry us along through these sufferings, Lord. Teach us to have joy. Teach us to have our eyes only on Christ. I pray for your blessing on these who have heard. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on them, that they would go forth and do what your word says, that they would feel the inexpressible joy and the peace of Christ's salvation. And I pray that you would help them to endure suffering and bring it to an end as you refine them. And I pray for each believer here that you would cause them to grow in their faith, that you would build up a church here of glowing saints, saints glowing with the power of the Almighty, glowing with the purity of your gospel. And Lord, I pray that that glow would be a light to those lost and perishing, that they would come here and they would not say, hey, I want to be these people, but they would come here and say, Christ is here and I want to be in Christ. And I pray that you do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.